Hey everybody, my name is Stetson. Uh, wherever you may be and whenever you may be, I'm really glad that we get to spend some time together. So thanks for letting me be here with you. Uh, lately, I have been reflecting on a skill that I used to have and was really good at, but I think I've lost it. And I don't know how to feel about that. See, I got my first smartphone after I graduated from college. So all throughout high school and college, I only had one other phone. It was a Motorola Razor. Uh, I don't know if any of you had one, but to this day, I think they're one of the coolest phones I've ever seen. But something it did not have on it was GPS. Uh, it couldn't give you driving directions. So all throughout high school and all throughout college, I could drive places without the need of GPS. And back then, I had an ability that I don't know if I have anymore. I could retain driving directions in a map in my head. Like, for those of you old enough to remember, do you remember when someone could tell you how to get somewhere and you could visualize it and keep that in your head for the entire drive? But even if it was too complicated, we also had the option to print out directions on Google Maps. And uh, I would take it with me. It would just be in the passenger seat of my car on these physical pieces of paper. But you'd have to pay really close attention. You'd have to keep track of how many miles have gone by from your last turn to your next turn so that you knew to pay attention for your next turn. But even then, with that detail, and if you're paying attention, if a street name changed, or if you hit construction and got detoured, or if you made a wrong turn, there was no rerouting. There was just panic and confusion. And you had to use your gut and your instincts to figure out how to get back onto that road again. Like today, driving somewhere I've never been to before without my phone, without that GPS, it feels like the equivalent of taking a sailboat across the Atlantic with a map and a compass. And the skill that I had uh, it's atrophied so much to the point where if someone were to give me verbal driving directions, my brain isn't used to retaining all that information. Like, I can't hold on to it. Like, my father-in-law, he's one of the kindest, most generous people you will meet, and he's always looking for ways to help. And so if we're meeting him somewhere, he'll give us verbal driving directions because he wants us to have the easiest time getting there. But the thing is, is like, it's like he's speaking Latin. Like I have, it, my brain can't hold on to it and contain it and compute it. It's too much detail than it's used to. So I'll politely wait for him to get through all the different like turns and streets and stuff. And then I'll ask him, do you have the address? Because that's all that I need. I just plug it into my phone and my phone will take me where I need to go. Sometimes... Reading the Bible can feel like trying to find our way without GPS. Instead, we've got this book of maps and charts seemingly pointing in all these different directions, and it's randomly changing street names from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And sometimes the directions feel like they're pointing in the opposite way that we're trying to go, and we have to either trust them or trust our gut and go in the other way. And it is really easy to get lost. 
I mean, we are in this series called Kingdom Culture. We've been in it since April, and we've just been looking at a couple chapters of the Bible. Uh, we've been looking at the sermon that Jesus gave. And you could say in this sermon, Jesus is giving us turn-by-turn directions of, of how to get to this kingdom that he's describing. And it sounds incredible. The trouble is, I don't remember most of what we've talked about since April. <laughs> and I doubt I'm alone in that. Like, I remember bits and pieces I've been thinking about from last week, and I remember who talked the week before that. But beyond that, it's just a blur. Like, I've forgotten all these, like, turn-by-turn directions of how to get there. And as good as the things that Jesus talked about, he doesn't cover everything. So what happens when life throws a curveball at us? What happens when we get detoured and we don't know how to get back to the right road? What happens when we make a wrong turn or the street name changes or we forget some of the directions? How are we supposed to find our way again? It would have been so nice if Jesus could have just given us the address to the kingdom that we could just plug into the GPS of our soul and it would just automatically take us there. And if we got lost or made a wrong turn or hit a detour, it it would just reroute us. Well, good news. He did. Wouldn't that be the worst introduction ever if he didn't just setting you up for disappointment? But yeah, he totally did uh, in this next verse. And I used to take this for granted. I used to treat it like something I'd read in a fortune cookie because in a way it kind of sounds like it, but I don't take it for granted anymore. And it might sound really familiar to you. This is uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And Jesus says this, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You have probably heard this before. It's the golden rule. Uh, And I didn't know until now that the golden rule was a part of the Sermon on the Mount. I thought Jesus was just like walking along with a group of people and he stopped and looked at the sky and said this really smart thing. And someone was like, wow, that's really good. We better write that down and find a place to fit it in here. But no, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. But you could say that this is the Sermon on the Mount. Because what Jesus is saying in this verse is basically, let me sum up everything I've been talking about up to this point. Let me sum up everything that you've been talking about since April as simply as I can. Just treat others like you would want to be treated if you were in their position. I used to think it was so cool that Jesus was the one who came up with the golden rule because I've heard it a bunch outside of Christian circles. And I wondered, it's like, did they know that they're quoting Jesus when they're saying this? But I found out Jesus actually didn't come up with the golden rule. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, almost every major culture and religion had something really similar written down. As if this is like a universal truth that all of humanity intuitively understands. Even 400 years before Jesus was born, it was written in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus. And when Jesus was still a baby at that time, there were these two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Hillel, and they were the most famous rabbis at the time. Like people would argue about which one was right. Both of them were brilliant. They had a little bit different perspectives. And there's this story that takes place either just before or when Jesus was born, he was still a baby. And this man, he goes up to Rabbi Shammai 
And he says, I want to convert to Judaism. But only if you can teach me all of Torah or the Bible in the amount of time that I can stand on one leg. And Rabbi Shammai, who's kind of a serious, kind of straightforward thinking, no nonsense person. And so he said, you are ridiculous. You're not serious about this and you need to get out of here. Some people say he even chased them off with a stick. Well, the story goes that man then went to Rabbi Hillel. And he said, Rabbi Hillel, I want to convert to Judaism, but only if you can explain to me all of Torah in the amount of time that I can stand on one leg. And Hillel looked at him and he said this, what you don't want people to do to you, don't do to them. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Pretty cool, huh? So Jesus, when he said this to people, they had heard this so many times before. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, it's like, look, let me sum up this whole sermon for you in a way that you've actually heard hundreds of times before. You've heard it from all around the world in the market square. You memorized this as a kid in Leviticus. Hillel said it really well. Just treat others like you would want to be treated if you were them. And maybe for some of the people listening, Hillel's words echoed in their mind. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Now, don't get me wrong. Every word of this sermon is gold. It is a masterpiece. We could spend the rest of our lives picking this apart. But I don't think Jesus wants us to spend the rest of our lives picking this apart. I think Jesus wants us to find the kingdom that he's been describing. I think he wants us to, to seek after it and experience it for ourselves. And when it comes to finding the kingdom, when it comes to experiencing it for ourselves, when it comes to bringing that kingdom here to earth as it is in heaven, it couldn't be made more simple. Treat others like you want to be treated. That's it. It's like Jesus has given us the kingdom's address and we can just plug it into our internal GPS and get going. If we get lost and we don't know how to get back to where we should be, <clears throat> we can ask ourselves, am I loving others and treating others like I would want to be treated and loved? And if the answer is yes, keep going. If a life hits construction and we get detoured, we can ask, it's like, well, am I loving others like I would want to be loved? Yes, all right, keep going. Sometimes even if I'm driving with my phone, I'm constantly checking it to see if I'm on the right road. We can do that with this too. Periodically, we're going to be like, am I doing things correctly? It's like, well, am I loving people like I would want to be loved if I were them? Yeah? All right. Good job. Keep going. We're heading in the right direction. So Jesus made this really simple. Just treat others like we would want to be treated. But as easy as that is to understand, let's be honest with ourselves. This is not easy to do, which Jesus fully admits in the next couple of verses. Check it out. Verse 13 and 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate <clears throat> and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. These are a couple other verses that I used to take out of context. I used to think that, <clears throat> excuse me, these verses were talking about eternal destination, like heaven and hell type stuff, eternal life, eternal, uh, eternal destruction. But I don't think that's what he's talking about for a couple of reasons. 
For one, he doesn't say eternal life or eternal destruction. He just says life and destruction. And eternal things are not something that Jesus shies away from talking about in other places in the Bible. He's talking about life and destruction, period. And two, he describes this narrow path as being really difficult and, and it's hard to do and it takes focus and intentionality and effort and there are few people who do it. But we know that we are saved not by works, but by faith, which is actually, in my opinion, quite easy. Jesus gave us this wide open, broad invitation to, to be with him, to do life with him, to receive what he's given us. And, and that's not hard to do and lots of people have done it. I think what Jesus is saying in these verses is while treating other people like we would want to be treated is easy to understand. Doing it is really hard to do. And there are a few people who have actually done it. And just looking back at the other things that Jesus taught on in this sermon, it, it checks out. I mean, like going along with what everyone else is doing, that's really easy. A lot of people do that. But doing good when no one else is, that's hard. Getting angry, super easy. But resolving conflict with someone, that's hard. Lust, incredibly easy. Self-control, that takes focus and intentionality. It is hard. Retaliation, that's kind of instinctual. It just happens out of nowhere. But responding peacefully, that is hard. Hating our enemies comes really naturally to us. But loving our enemies, that's hard hard. Uh, materialism and greed, th that's easy to get on board with. But giving what we have to those in need, that's hard. Judging other people, super good at it. But empathy and humility and assuming the best of others, that is incredibly hard. This narrow path, treating others like we would want to be treated, it is really hard to do. And few people do it. Jesus illustrates this through this image of these two roads, this really narrow path that's difficult with a gate at the end of it and this broad path that's easy that has a gate at the end of it. And, and that's just kind of confusing to me. It's like I, I don't feel like I would encounter a fork in the road like this in, in real life. But I was thinking about it, and I think I figured out what he was describing. And that reminded me of something that I heard about a couple of years ago. Uh, in Ethiopia, there is this church. It's called Abuna Yamataga, and it was built in the 5th century. And right now, you're looking at a picture of Father Asefa. Father Asefa, he has been the priest of this church for the past 50 years. You can see a little bit uh, of it behind him in the background. But something is really unique about this church. It's location. This church is located 1,000 feet up the side of this rock formation. And the only way to get to it is to climb 1,000 feet up the side of this rock formation. Like, here's a picture of a couple people climbing up the side of that rock formation to go to church. And we complain about not having enough parking. <laughs> but honestly, I think the hardest part of this climb is the last 10 or 15 feet. Check this out. This is a picture of Father Asefa about to walk the last 10 or 15 feet to the door of the church where this picture is being taken from. And in front of him, he's got this very narrow path. 
that to cross it takes focus and intentionality, and he has to be really deliberate about each step. But just to the side of him is this really broad path that is incredibly easy to go down. You just lean to the side and gravity takes care of the rest, a thousand feet down to the bottom. I I think forever this will be the picture that comes to mind when I hear about the narrow and the broad path because I think this is the type of situation that Jesus was talking about here. Okay, This might be kind of crazy, but for me, when I'm at the top of a building or at the edge of like a canyon or a cliff and looking down from a really high height, I don't like to get too close to the edge. And it's not just because I'm afraid of falling, but it's because in a way I don't trust myself. Because it feels like as I look down over this edge, like that abyss has this compelling force to it. And it feels like it's just kind of beckoning me down. And I don't have a death wish. Like I'm really happy. It's not like that. It's, it's almost like this darkly seductive pull to it. That's just saying, just, just lean a little bit more forward. It's easy. It will be fun. Come on and come on and try it. Now, I don't know if you can relate with that or not, but sometimes resolving conflict with someone feels like walking this really narrow path that takes focus and intentionality when just to the side, anger is just inviting me to just kind of tilt over and get caught up in it. Sometimes self-control feels like really deliberately just taking one step in front of the other when lust has this seductive pull to it that's just saying, come on down, it'll be fun. Sometimes treating someone with empathy and and growing in humility and assuming the best of another person, it takes focus and intentionality. And you have to be really, really careful because just to the side, you can feel judging that person as just this welcome invitation of, come on down, just, just tip over. It'll be fun. Treating others like we want to be treated is this narrow path that is hard to do. And the broad path is just really easy to fall down. But why do it? That might sound like a weird question, but honestly, it's like if this is so hard, if it takes so much focus and intentionality and so few people do it, why should we? Why should we spend our lives exerting all this effort to do it? Because for me, honestly, if I'm being really, really vulnerable and honest, it has to be more than just about doing the right thing. Because I can do good for the right thing for a period of time, but for my whole life, it's going to have to be about something more than just morality. There has to be a deeper reason. I mean, check out this picture. If, if you don't see it, the lady in the back, she's carrying her baby on her back, and she just crossed that last 10 to 15 feet into the door of that church in Ethiopia. Why did she go to church that day? I don't think it was because she felt this moral obligation to go to church. Like it's Sunday and this is just what we do. Get on my back. We're going to church. I don't think that's the case. And all due respect to Father Asefa, his sermons can't be that good. (laughs) So what was it that made her walk that narrow path that day? It has to be a deeper reason. And there is a deeper reason why Jesus is inviting us to walk this narrow path. Look again at verse 13 and 14. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. 
and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I believe as human beings, every one of us is ultimately searching after one thing, life. And Jesus says, treating others the way we want to be treated, this narrow path is hard, but it's worth it because that's where we find life. Oftentimes the broad, easy paths, they only lead to destruction. There are a lot of people out there who go about life trying to find life through easy paths and a lot of them experience a ton of destruction. But there are some who go about life taking this narrow path Jesus is inviting us on and they find life. And again, we are not talking about life and destruction that happens after we die. Jesus is talking about life and destruction that we can experience now, today. When I think about my life, this rings true. Oftentimes the easy paths I've taken have been destructive. It is really easy for me to yell at my kids. I just make eye contact and start shouting. It doesn't require a whole lot of skill. It's easy. But I don't walk away from doing that thinking, that was such a life-giving experience. It feels destructive. I feel like a bad dad. It is really easy for me to judge other people whose stories I don't know. I do that more often than I want to admit. But after doing that, I'm not filled with this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It more often feels like getting scraped along the side of a cliff as I fall down it. A lot of easy paths are destructive. It can take a lifetime of focus and intentionality uh, and self-control to fight an addiction. It can take 10 seconds to relapse. It's easy. It can take a lifetime of vulnerability and, and heartache and authenticity and, uh, to build a friendship or a relationship or a marriage. It can take one thoughtless sentence to ruin it. But also looking back, I realize the times that I've chosen to take the narrower, harder paths, those by far have been the most life-giving. Sometimes the narrow path is hard because of the amount of focus and self-control and intentionality that it takes. Uh, last month, I had said some things and also failed to say some things that really bothered a friend of mine. And he could have taken the easy path and made a whole bunch of judgments about me and let just bitterness and anger set in, but he chose to take the narrow path and asked if we could talk. So we sat down to talk, and the whole time, it felt like we were walking along just this cliff's edge, just like one slip, and it was over. And he started talking about these things that I had said and did and how they had impacted him, and you could just feel anger to the side just inviting him to come down. It's so easy. You'll love it. It'll be fun. But he chose to keep stepping really carefully forward, assuming the best of me while also being really honest with me. And as he honestly and really clearly described the things that I had said and done and failed to do, I could feel pride and defensiveness just to the side of me, just saying, just lean over. I'll carry you down the rest of the way. It'll be so much easier but I chose to keep stepping forward really carefully, really intentionally and exercising humility. And I learned about mistakes that I had made and things that I could have done better. And back and forth, we did this until together we made it to the other side. And I don't know about him, but for me, 
it felt like this spiritual adrenaline rush that we did together. Like it felt like we accomplished something together. We both apologized for different things, but we felt more love and connection towards each other. It felt like we avoided the destruction of something, but it also felt like that we brought more life into something. Not just that we experienced it, but we in a way created it and made space for more of it to exist. It was incredible. Sometimes the narrow path is really difficult because of what it causes us to give up in order to do it. A few weeks ago was the men's uh, Olympic high jump final. And uh, it came down to two guys, one guy from Italy and another one from Qatar or Qatar. I never know which one is right. But they both jumped and they tied for the highest jump. And an Olympic official came to the two of them and said, uh, you can jump again to break the tie. But then one of the guys, and, and by the way, these two guys, they've spent their whole lives trying to be better than anybody else, trying to stand on the tallest platform of the podium. But in that moment, one of the guys asked the official, can we share the gold? And the official, he was taken aback by it for half a second, and he hesitantly said, yes, you can do that if you want to. And that's when this picture was taken. Just take a second and look at their faces. Tell me that they are not experiencing the fullness of life in that moment. At the medal ceremony, they took turns placing a gold medal around each other's necks. This is a narrow path that few people would have chosen to take, but they did. They sacrificed first place to literally put each other first. And in doing it, they found life. I think something that makes the harder path more life-giving is actually how hard it is because we put all of ourselves into it. It's this vulnerable, sacrificial thing. It takes effort and intentionality and focus, and somehow that produces more life. Like I know a few people who have climbed to the top of Pikes Peak, but I also know that there are many, many more people who have driven to the top of Pikes Peak. There's a road that leads up there. And I bet if I stood at the top of Pikes Peak and waited for someone to come to the top of the trail, and I gave them a moment to just kind of take it all in and walked up to them and said, what was it like getting to the top? We would have this whole conversation about things that they've seen and heard and things they learned about themselves. And, and they would describe what they're looking at in that moment, which is kind of like this awe and reverence and respect and appreciation. But if I then walked over to the parking lot of the visitor center, and then waited for a car to pull in and, and for people to get out of their car. And I asked them, what was it like getting to the top? They would probably say something like, I don't know, it was, it was fine. It took a little while to find a parking spot. And they might ask me where the bathrooms are or something. I would bet money that people who take the harder, narrower path to climb up the mountain experience far more life than the people who drive up the broad paved road. 
There is life in the climb. Jesus has shown us how to get to the kingdom. Just treat others like we would want to be treated. But he doesn't just show us how to get there. He shows us how to be there and experiencing it because he acknowledges this is hard, but the people who do it, they find life along the way. So paradoxically, treating others like we would want to be treated is not just the path, but is somehow also the destination to what we're looking for, life, the kingdom. And as good as that sounds, as easy as it is to understand, I, I still think there's one major thing that causes us to hesitate from doing this. And I think selfishness might be an unfair term. I don't think that's giving us enough credit. I think self-preservation might be the right term. Self-preservation is this honest thing to consider just as human beings. It's a good thing to think about. But sometimes loving and treating someone like we would want to be if we were in their position, that can feel really sacrificial. It can require us that we give a lot. And in that moment, when we're faced with that opportunity, we often ask a lot of what ifs. What if I do this and I'm not left with enough? What if I don't get what I need or what I want? What if I do this and it's a waste and this person takes advantage of me? Or what if I'm loving all these people like I would want to be loved? Who's going to love me? Sometimes contemplating treating someone and loving someone like we would want to be loved can feel like standing at the bottom of a thousand foot cliff and looking up and questioning whether or not it's worth the risk. That's why it is so important for us to remember that we don't climb alone. Just a few verses earlier in the chapter that we're looking at, Jesus said, don't worry about what you need because doing this, it, it can require us giving up what we feel like we, what we need. And Jesus says, don't worry about what you need. Just keep climbing towards the kingdom and God will give you what you need. He is a good father. He knows how to give you good things. Sometimes we are just spent and we have nothing left to give to anyone, but we also know the Holy Spirit is inside of us producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In the very last verse of this book, Jesus tells us, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This path, this climb that Jesus is inviting us on is difficult, but we don't climb alone. Jesus is not some heartless priest sitting in a church a thousand feet up a cliffside waiting to see who is good and perfect enough to make it all the way to the top and who slipped and fell. He is climbing right behind us. And in this way, Father Asepha is a lot like Jesus. Father Asepha lives in that church on that cliffside in Ethiopia, but every day for the past 50 years, he has climbed all the way down so that if anyone wants to come up, he can guide them. 
He climbs right behind them and he tells them where to put their hands and where, where to put their feet so they don't fall. And if they get nervous or scared, he's there to encourage them and tell them to keep going because he wants them to experience what he's experienced throughout his whole life, just like Jesus guides us. We might slip and scrape ourselves up a bit, but he doesn't let us fall. He encourages us because he wants us to experience what he has experienced, what he sees. He wants us to see that too and experience that too. You could say in a way that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus gently guiding us up this climb, saying, put your hand there, put your foot there. Don't be afraid. I'm right behind you. Don't worry. I've got you. Jesus has shown us really simply how to experience and get to this kingdom. Treat others like we want to be treated. He's given us the address. We can get going. Though this is not easy to do, it is difficult, but it is worth it. Because along the way, we find where we're heading. Paradoxically, it's both the path and the destination to life in the kingdom when we treat others like we want to be treated. This can be hard and scary and risky, but it's okay because we don't climb alone. We have the address. Let's just get going. So Jesus, he actually gave us something really beautiful to do together to remind us of a lot of these things, that he's with us and he loves us and we're not climbing alone. And that is communion, which we're going to receive together. So if you have what you need in front of you, let's do that now. So the night before Jesus died for us, he was having dinner with his friends and he picked up a piece of bread and he looked at them and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's do that together now. So that same night, Jesus then held out a cup of wine and he looked at his friends and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. So again, let's do that together now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the mysteries that you've just given us a peek at. Mysteries for us to uncover and explore and, and discover. That is really fun and really beautiful and really meaningful. I, I hope that never ends. But Father, thank you also for making the really important things really clear and not making those a mystery. Thank you for how you've loved us. Help us to keep that in mind as we look up at this narrow path and contemplate loving others like we would want to be if we were in their shoes. 
Please help us to grow in humility and empathy. But also help us to remember that we are not meant to do this on our own power. I don't think that would often turn out very good. But Jesus, you climb with us. You show us where to put our hands and where to put our feet and how to intentionally step forward. Thank you for being there for us, with us, always. So, fathers, for all these things that we say, thank you. And it's in all these things that we ask for your help. And we pray this in your name. Amen.